Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories to tell. Today we're talking with Megan Westervelt, a photographer. She calls herself a conservation photojournalist who has spent her career documenting human interaction with the environment. Most recently, she's completed two major projects in Ecuador. Megan talks to us about her photojournalism career, her travels, and her interactions with her subjects. An interesting term I found on your website. You call yourself a conservation photojournalist. Correct. I'm sure that most people have no idea what that means. So can you define that for us? Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's one of those terms that's constantly being redefined nowadays. But how I define it and what I kind of gleaned from the International League of Conservation Photographers, they really inspired me to call myself as such, was really telling stories that would not only show beautiful pictures of nature and the environment and get people inspired to maybe travel. But instead of just showing those beautiful images, trying to cover stories that involved human impact on the environment and also the environment's impact uh, and role in our lives. And I think that that will have a much more powerful impact on expanding people's understanding of the need to change not just how we think about the environment, but how we behave towards the environment, how we interact with it. And if I can bring some attention to that boundary, which is becoming increasingly important um, in everyone's lives or anywhere in the world, then that's my goal as a, as a photojournalist. So what are your tools? Photojournalist means probably something different in 2017 than it did 20 years ago, 10 years ago, or maybe even five years ago. Uh, it's not just still images, correct? Absolutely, correct. Correct, correct. I have also evolved since I even graduated in what I use. A lot of it's become focused on video as well as not just controlling everything myself, but now giving tools to what used to be considered just the subjects of stories. I think that's become a very important part of photojournalism, how I see it. Um, I can tell the objective point of view with my camera, both my still camera, my video camera, my audio recorder, 
all the tools, but putting the camera in new hands, giving it a new direction and purpose has also become a very important way to use maybe the traditional tools. You've done a couple of major projects in Ecuador. Um, Tell us about those. Uh, Tell us about the first one. The first was a focus on communities that are affected by (laughs) what very few Americans have heard of, disease called Chagas disease, which is a parasitic, often fatal parasitic disease affecting millions of people and yet known to exist by only maybe a thousand or two. Very, very few people. C-H-A-G-A-S. Correct. Yep. It does sound more like Chagas, but yes, Chagas disease really plagues most equatorial countries. Uh, But it's in, they found it in Ecuador in the higher regions in the southern province of Loja. And so what I did was team up with, uh, I was lucky to team up with Dr. Mario Grijalva, who founded the Tropical Disease Institute, now the Infectious and Tropical Disease Institute here at OU. And he works in partnership with the Catholic University uh, of Ecuador. And what they've tried to do is help communities through scientific research to develop a methodology to fight against this disease, which is transmitted by a very, very small beetle, kissing bug, in the middle of the night, when of course everyone's sleeping peacefully, that crawls through these little holes wedged out in these adobe brick houses, crawls in, crawls on usually the face, sometimes the arms of sleeping individuals, bites them, and then through fecal matter, basically transmits this parasite that gets into the bloodstream, eats away at tissue slowly, and 10 to 15 years later will just cause abrupt fatalities. Yes. Wow. And so it was something that, yeah, you, you can't see. You don't know who's affected. You really don't know how they're being, how they're being affected by it. There's no treatment. There's no cure. There's a little you can do to prevent it, but mostly it's through improving construction materials, right, making the houses safer, as well as educating people about this bug and fumigation as well, but that's kind of the last resort. So what I did was focus on a group of women who are trying to use basically their aptitude for handicraft creation to sell, gain some money for their families and community, and start to become more self-sufficient in their fight against Chagas. So that ultimately, hopefully, Mario's team and and that from the university down there can move out and leave a very self-sufficient, educated, and prepared community behind without having to create that dependence, which tends to always happen when some, you know, group comes in from the outside. So, So it was through their artwork... Their, their creative talents that they were creating art uh, objects that could be sold. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that money put back into not only their families, but the, the community. It's one of those very unique stories where I think that they're finally taking some action to control the local economy, which will then affect the local health. And you don't see that a lot. So as an outsider coming in, Mm -hmm. 
and and confronting this issue, how did you go about deciding what to do? Uh, how how to approach your story? I mean, you have that's a major story to tell. How how did you go through the structuring process? I didn't actually know exactly what I'd focus on when I got there. I was kind of asked to photograph and document a bit of everything happening and then realized that this beautiful story was unfolding kind of behind the scenes. I was it actually, wasn't involving the science per se. Exactly. It was more of a cultural uh, uh, approach, correct? Correct. Yes. My, my belief is that by working with people and their culture and trying to conserve the good parts of each of those um, lifestyles or cultures that you can then also improve the environment um, for the good of the environment itself, but also for our health. So, yes, it was a cultural approach um, to a health problem, to an economic problem. And I was working on my own. I, I fortunately knew enough Spanish to get by and, and really improve my Spanish greatly that summer <laughs> having to work alone. Um, I had a two-camera setup. I was shooting two angles at all times, and I use only prime lenses. So that means there's no zooming. There's just moving cameras on tripods. And these mount they were mountains, really, to climb each day um, because they're not – they situate their houses in the most incredible places that would not seem viable for – actually lasting living conditions, but they, they live there and they prosper. And I On the sides of mountains? Is yes. that what you're talking about? Okay. Very dry, desert-like, something like maybe the Sierra Nevadas. Okay. But yeah, so I um, began by really trying to just work with them and interview them. And before I even tried to get the cameras out, because they're, they're a fairly quiet group of people. They they've never been in front of cameras before. They, they're they just... You know. How did you get their trust? I I think I tend to be pretty lucky. I Maybe it's the way I carry myself or how I sincerely want to know about people and, and to hear their stories and listen to them that they they really opened up to me. Um, and I was, I felt very, I think it helps perhaps being a woman I'm less intimidating in that society because it tends to be male dominated in Ecuador um, so that helped they they knew why I was there I was very open transparent about the reason I'm doing this the story that I'm hoping to tell and they wanted to promote what they're doing they want it to be a successful model for others perhaps so uh, they understood the potential that this could have for not only their community, but but helping others. And so I try to empower always my subjects when I explain what I'm doing and what they could be doing if if we were to work together. So once you gain their trust and once you go through all of the crazy kinds of mechanics that you had to go through to advance your story and get the the, the images that you you wanted, at what point did you decide that you were going to give them uh, a voice, so to speak, by giving them the cameras? Sure. Well, that, you know, I wish I had thought of it when I was working with that group because it would have been amazing with the women themselves taking the images. And I'm hoping when I go back to Ecuador here in a week that, that maybe I can visit those communities and, and do a, a little offer a photo workshop that will allow them to. But it didn't actually occur to me okay. until I received the Fulbright grant. 
returned to Ecuador and decided that I wanted to now focus my efforts on an area that's being far overlooked and underappreciated, which is eastern Ecuador, the Amazonian corner of the country. And so you went there with the purpose of doing a particular story, a commission by someone? How did that work? Yeah, I, I was inspired by a 2000, the, th- the January 2013 issue of National Geographic, in which I found a story called Rainfor- Rainforest for Sale. And in that story, I read uh, about a fantastic proposal made by the Ecuadorian government to have some of the most consumptive, in terms of energy, countries in the world pay about half the quantity of money that the oil would be worth that's under Yasuni. It's called Yasuni National Park. That's under that park, if, if they could get half the value from these countries, they would not extract there. They wouldn't explore there. They would leave it alone. It was, it was the Yasuni ITT initiative. It was a f- actually a fant- sort of environmental extortion. It is, absolutely, to okay. a T. Uh, however, I think it was slated to fail from the beginning. I don't feel that the president, President Correa, actually ever intended to give it enough time or energy in promoting it to, to see it succeed. I don't think that would be profitable would have been profitable for for him or anyone in that country. I will probably not be allowed in the country saying that. <laughs> so you saw this story and you went, huh. Yeah, so it failed, right? It fa- this, this initiative failed and they were going to go forward with exploration, extraction in a national park that is arguably the most biodiverse place in the world. Yasuni. There are hundreds of thousands of species of insects not yet identified, species of birds, and there's so many endemic creatures there. It's, it's been compared to the Galapagos, but the Amazonian equivalent. And so, yeah, I decided, you know, this needs some exploring. And I worked with uh, Beth Clodfelter at the Office of Nationally Competitive Awards and was like, Beth, I, I want this project to happen I don't know how to fund it. Would Fulbright be a way to consider this? And she guided me through that. And I was incredibly fortunate to make it past the first selection process, which is looking at portfolios only. And then after that, um, to have the project funded only because she, she advised that I put a positive twist on things. And ever since that, I've looked at life a bit differently. But instead of looking at, well, what's gonna happen now in a negative way, how is everything going to be destroyed? To really go in and look at, okay, well, what are different actors and groups of people going to do to conserve what's still there, right? How can we look at this in a positive way, which I think we all need right now. And so that's what I did. I, I was very graciously awarded that grant, and I went down with the idea of documenting what are the different groups of actors, right? So you have the oil companies, you have the scientists, there's a research station nearby. You have these two, mainly two groups of indigenous folks that have only recently been contacted. You had the Warani and Quechua. And so I had these four groups and I was asking myself, how can I best document what they're each doing in a way that will make a compelling story and maybe change how Maybe even the, how the government's handling this. 
that was, of course, my loftiest goal. But <laughs> at least how people in Ecuador, maybe in the U.S., how they're thinking about this, how they're considering future options, what they're doing. So I went down with that idea. After about three months of just documenting myself, I realized that I know nothing about this culture. I've spent three months solid every single day with these families eating what they're eating, trying to follow them as they hunt, which never worked. <laughs> I realized that the only way to really tell their story would be giving them the cameras, right? So I petitioned Viscom here at OU to send me some of their older cameras they will never use again, I'm sure. Some Canon 20Ds and Nikon D200s, some of the great old models of DSLRs to bring those down, which I did, and set up basically a collaborative with these indigenous communities that allowed these groups to use cameras to document what's happening, the changes that they're going through, the changes their environment is going through. So I was able to work with over 50 indigenous photographers and then present their work by the end of that year in a national exhibit to which we invited over half of those photographers to present. Someone that had never even traveled to the capital of the country, Quito. And this was their first trip, not only to the capital, but then presenting their own photographs to a huge audience in Quito of over almost 500 people, which I think is pretty big to them. It was like all the people of Quito had come. And to have that cultural exchange and allow them to share their concerns, their thoughts, their hopes for the future was an absolutely transformative experience. So did you give them guidance along the way? Certainly you, you taught them how to operate the, the mechanics of the camera, but did you teach them basic photography or did you just say, here, go to it? You know, traditionally the photo voice methodology is to basically just give them the cameras, tell them to go for it, really very little guidance so that you get back their honest reflections. You're not having any persuasion in anything, any effect. But I decided to really teach them to document stories, right? To tell stories. They're phenomenal storytellers. Their entire culture is based on oral history, really rich oral history that I hope they don't lose in the next few generations. But they know how to tell stories better than almost anyone I've ever met. And so all they needed was a little redirecting in the visual storytelling track. They're incredibly visual people to begin with. They can spot things in the jungle that I still, I will take hours to search for and will still escape me. So I just had to harness their skills that they've already been practicing for generations and with their grandparents and great-grandparents, harness those, teach the basic fundamental use of the cameras, the buttons, etc. but then tell them guide them through the storytelling process more than just point and shoot and capture what you can. I had to try to edge them away from just hunting pictures <laughs> because they're very good at pointing sure. things and shooting, right? That's everyone's instinct, I think, when you first pick up a camera to really looking, okay, looking for what's missing. You've, you've got your characters and your setting, but what is the message you're trying to transmit with this? You know, is it just that someone got new shoes or is it talking about more consumption, consumerism, making its way in the community? What are you trying to say? So it was a bit of guidance, um, I have to admit, in that 
they they didn't realize that they could transmit messages, right? An actual intentional message. They were just looking at what was around and capturing it until that kind of storytelling guidance kicked in. This question may be obtuse, but but because they're such a visual and oral people, did that make them better photographers? Did that make them better shooters? Uh, did they have an eye that you didn't have to train? You could not be more perfect in that in that assumption or in that in that prediction because yes, I didn't know what to expect. I'd worked with some other groups in Kitso teaching basic photography courses, and then I arrive, and I remember one day I handed he's probably sixty year old the sixty year old elder elderly leader of this community, fantastic individual who can see into the future in ways that we just can't anymore and interpret dreams wow in a in a beautiful way but I handed him the camera right his first camera he'd ever held in his life and you know he 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 had he couldn't figure out where to look or how to actually trigger or anything else so we worked with that and then I left him with that camera overnight I was like just take some images anything that you feel like anything you see or do in your daily and he came back the next day and blew my mind. I was so impressed just how he had even composing. We hadn't even talked about composition yet. And he'd already seen what took me at least a year, year and a half here at, at come as a graduate student to, to really achieve. So yes, they are, have an absolute propensity for this. I think with a bit more support and a few more resources, they could become the most important photojournalists and journalists working in that part of the world that have ever been there, to be honest. They just don't have any resources to, to make that happen. But they're living this change on a daily basis. If they could just, I, we left them with one camera um, that I, my parents and I gifted them, but if they could be given a few more resources, they're so excited about this and telling their story and getting their photos seen by anyone. And I really think that they could possibly be the greatest guardians of that rainforest. We'll be back after this message. This program is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. The Scripps faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing media environment. The Scripps College of Communication is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country and was named a Center of Excellence in Ohio in 2010. It's proud to showcase the Stephen L. Schoonover Center for Communication, the brand new facility that opened in 2015. State-of-the-art laboratory spaces and flipped classrooms are just two of the many features in this new building. Learn more about the Scripps College of Communication at ohio.edu slash 
Scripps College. When you go into an area and invest your time and your energy and your emotion and your resources into an area, you know it has to end. You're not going to spend your whole career there. You're not going to spend your whole life there, but you still make the investment. What do you leave behind and what do you take on with you? Oh, that's the hardest question yet. <laughs> I think I've always had a hard time just finding closure and moving on. That is, I believe, the most fundamental proposal of this exhibit that we produced was giving closure to this project or some way to start using it for educational purposes. So what what I've left behind and when I leave Ecuador next summer, what I hope to still leave behind is the knowledge that I offered and expanded, hopefully, uh, the ideas, offered new ideas, expanded existing ones for, for a group of people that were never before really given the time of day, given much, much stature within the country, politically speaking or socially, any way, really. It's a, it's a fairly... Uh, fairly racist country, actually, against um, indigenous groups. So giving them the knowledge that they can, with just a picture, reach a thousand people, that they have much more voice in this world than anyone's ever admitted to before, that they can be the change that they're so desperately needing and wanting, right? They keep asking everyone else for help, without looking inward at what they can do. So I know I've left that lasting impression in at least, you know, the photographers I worked with, um, hopefully some of their friends and families. I do believe this is something that that will need to be revisited in the future. I would love to help um, other students or photojournalists, journalists, anyone interested in working down there to make the connections. I don't think it's something that I or anyone should or could just work with for a while and leave, right? That's not lasting change. You have no monitoring happening. You have no idea what's going on after that, right? It could be, for now, a happy ever after, but who knows two years from now? I mean, that national park has been partitioned into oil blocks and sold off to every big oil nation you know in the world. And very few people know that, but to get into the park, you have to go through an oil company security guard and security station. So I, I encourage anyone, anyone who's at all interested to keep working down there. I would love to. There's other obligations that keep me to just from just moving down forever. But I know I'll be back, and whether it's 5, 10, 20 years, I'm not sure. But I don't feel that this is the end. I've never been able to leave when I see a need still existing. And I think that's a problem with a lot, not a problem, but maybe a weakness of a lot of, of stories that we cover. You know, they're told and maybe in a brilliant way, but then what? They're often forgotten. They're, some are not, some continue, and that's, that's what I admire. So the goal is to find anyone. I mean, there's so many 
reasons to be interested in the story and to tell it in different ways that I haven't even thought of, I'm sure. There are opportunities beyond the wildest, wildest imagination anyone has ever thought of to work with these people and support what they're trying to do and conserve their culture, conserve their environment, realize that their country is economically dependent on extraction, but how to best do that without completely obliterating what was there before. You're a digital native and use all kinds of media. Do you still have a preference for the still image and what it can convey, or have you moved on? Never. (laughs) Never, never, no. The still image has a quality. It's something like going back in time, in their culture, to that moment of first contact with the missionaries in about the 60s. In that moment, yes, it could have been documented video, which would have also been very interesting. But as a still image, that can cross any and all boundaries around the world and describe basically the same story that's been told in every resource-rich region with every native group that's been affected. They can all commiserate with that one image. It transcends time. Yes, which sounds very cliche. It transcends not only time, but boundaries and, and, and people and languages. I, there were some students I had that I could barely speak with, converse with. Uh, I just Their understanding of Spanish was so rudimentary, and my understanding of their native language, which is, wow, Tedero, totally fundamentally non-existent, really, (laughs) that it was all about showing them images, showing them how to compose, um, and using still images to do that, right? And then, of course, working with them on a kinesthetic basis. But, uh, yeah, I think that by the end, that their imagery, even though they had no idea um, where it would end up or what would become of it, they just knew they they really did want to share it, right? That one image can change everything. And video just can't do that. It moves so quickly. It happens so fast and then it's done. Yeah, you can rewind or replay a million times, but it's never going to do the same. It's never going to really get under anyone's skin until you give them an absolutely stunning image. So what's next for you? Very great question. (laughs) As I mentioned, I will never completely be able to leave this project, nor this region, um, nor South America. But I do believe it is time to pay a little attention to the environmental events and situation, maybe here in my own country. While I want to continue collaboration down there, I also want to look at some projects that Uh, are on the horizon here in the U.S., especially out in my homeland of the West in Colorado, in that area. There's there's a lot of potential risk in the coming future for a lot of areas. And I'd like to, now that I have a bit more experience, maybe work with uh, some Native groups in the Four Corners area where I grew up 
you know, the Navajo, the Ute, they have such important stories to tell that rarely make mainstream media. So my goal would be to come back next year, maybe even make connections between those groups and those in South America so that they can help support each other. Um, I'm much more of an advocate photojournalist than um, the traditional photojournalist but that's why I put that little conservation right in front of my title so that's my goal and I'm not going to stop till it happens Megan thank you so much thank you so much Tom it was a pleasure today we've talked with conservation photojournalist Megan Westervelt about incorporating her projects and how she incorporates her subjects into her work This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through iTunes. If you have questions or comments about our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.